Hello, and welcome to Make My Multiversity, the best podcast in our universe for exploring the Marvel multiverse. I'm Jake Hill. And I'm Elias Rosner. And this month, this month, this week, we're going to be discussing Baseline X and something new and spooky. It's not Excelsior. Spooky. It's not spooky? I mean, maybe it's spooky. Well, you'll just have to wait and see. Um, I guess it depends on your opinions, whether or not you have spooky opinions. <laughs> I um, have spooky opinions. So if you're uh, joining us newly and you don't know about our uh, Baseline X uh, segment, this is where we, uh, Elias and I are big fans of everything coming out X-Men right now, but we're bigger fans of some X-Men than others. So we are tracking month to month how we feel about various books and seeing the rise and fall in our hearts of each of the many, I think it's 14 at this point, uh, X-Men books. Yeah. And so we've had some big, you know, disagreements, some very cool agreements. And also we've definitely screwed this up a couple times, but that's the fun of it. Yeah, I think this month I got everything right. I mean, <laughs> I include all 14 books, so that's right. That's all that matters. Um, it's It matters the most. I'm sure other things will turn out to matter. Um, so do we have rules to this segment, Elias, or are we just like taking it? Well, the rules usually are we try to go back and forth and limit the discussion to after we've gone through the entire list. That way we can save some time and not also forget what half our list was. Because I've done that many times. <laughs> I'm much more organized this time. Mine's color-coded now. It's great. All right, so we'll start with you, Jake. Since you are the resident expert, your opinions are more important. Um, I am uncomfortable with the idea that my opinions are important to anyone, but I will offer them unimportantly. Um, okay, my number 14 and lowest ranked X book uh, is might be a somewhat controversial choice because uh, if you've been following our discussion since even before we were hosts of this podcast, it is known that we have thought Fallen Angels was the number 14 worst X-Men book. It's a garbage book, but you were very you were very kind to it early on. Um, I think there's a lot going on there, and we're going to talk about that probably in a second, because my number 14 book is Wolverine. I am hurt that Fallen Angels is no longer 14 for you, but it is still 14 for me, but we'll get to that. Uh, well, Fallen Angels has now moved up to 13. That is a swap from my last month uh, choices, where um, Fallen Angels was the worst and Wolverine was the second worst. Wolverine has fallen in my esteem. So my mine has remained fairly similar. Wolverine is still number 13. Um, my number 12 is X-Force, which is the same. Oh, we are agreeing. X-Force has fallen a little for me, but it is now number 12. My number 11 is still X-Men Fantastic Four. Jeez. Uh, had, had you not cruelly uh, put Wolverine at number 14, we would have the same list. Um, well, that shows either that we're like merging into one being with one opinion or that these opinions are substantiated. Um, my number 10 book is uh, same as last month, New Mutants. Okay, now we're, now we're starting to diverge. I have cable here. Okay, well, here's where I start changing. Uh, having This is probably the, the farthest movement of anything on my list, but my number nine book, falling very far from its position last month, is Excalibur. Ooh, really? Yeah, and um, I will <sighs> explain myself in just a moment. That's where I have Empire X-Men, which is a huge fall for mine. Ooh, interesting. Uh, my number eight, a slight fall from last month, is Cable. I've got Giant Size there. I got Giant Size as number seven. Uh, actually, now, now that I'm looking at it, Cable and Giant Size uh, switch 
uh, this month for me. Cable is one spot lower. Giant size is one spot higher. Hmm. Uh, I've got uh, Helians, Hellions, Hooligans, Hooligans at number seven. I like Hooligans. I think that they, that actually describes the book better. They're a bunch of Hooligans. Yeah. Um, my number six is Empire X-Men, uh, a very uh, much up from last month. Respectable. And you will be happy to know that Marauders has come up the rankings to number six. That's ridiculous. Marauders needs to come up the ranking to number one. The rest of my list remains unchanged from last month. My number five is Hellions. Mine is still changing. New Mutants have moved up. Uh, my number four is X-Men. And then I've got uh, Excalibur for number four. My number three is X-Factor. Oh. Uh, yeah, my, my number three is also X-Factor. Um, my number two is House of X Powers of Ten, Hoxpox. And I've got X-Men num at number two. And my number one is Marauders, the greatest comic of all time. And I've got the greatest comic of all time, House of X Powers of Ten, two series. You know, I'm saying that, but I'm actually hold physically holding my new hardcover of House of X Powers of Ten. Oh, those hard that hardcover is beautiful. It's real. I the cover gallery in the back is one of the coolest cover galleries I've ever seen. There were such cool variants that I did not see when they first came out. Yeah. Um. So, where do you want to start? We want to start at the bottom. Start off from the bottom. Work uh, our way up. Yeah, I do. I do want to quickly just say that uh, while X Men is number two, I was not as enamored with the most recent. Uh, issue but I, I blame that on uh or the issue that we're doing for this which is i blame tyanitis um i actually reread that issue this morning for my x-men column on multiversitycomics.com mutantversity and um it's really good i maybe if you find yourself with some time give it a second look i think it's cool all right um but okay, so I guess the first thing to discuss is my controversial um, moving of Wolverine and Fallen Angels, right? Yeah. So, how, how has Fallen Angels been dethroned from being the worst X-Men book of this era? Um, okay, so I guess just a really quick recap of my feelings about Fallen Angels. I think Fallen Angels took some huge swings, and they were 100% misses. That book did not accomplish anything it set out to do. But I really appreciate the swings. And a lot of things that a lot of people found disquieting about the book, I found to be part of the authorial intent. Like, for example, um, a lot of the artwork in that book, if you ever go back and read it, which I don't recommend, it's quite bad, um, does a lot of close-up panels that isolate various characters' body parts. If somebody's whispering, it'll be a close-up of a mouth. If somebody is uh, grabbing a sword, which a lot of people grab swords, it'll be a close-up of their hand. Or uh, if there's someone is looking at something, it'll be a close-up of their eye. And a lot of people found this to be kind of objectifying because it was just like slicing up body parts, right? Yeah, I, I, I heard kind of um, – what's the word for it? Uh, dueling opinions on that. One being it was very objectifying, but it was also uh, very intentional to, at, to be isolating. Like, like that was kind of the point. Yeah, you probably heard that from me, because that's my thoughts on that. But um, I found that since one of the themes of the book was how Psylocke is now um, uh, is now Quanin, and Quanin is now back in her original body, but because of all her crazy body swap sci-fi story, she um, she feels alienated from her own body. So by 
by objectifying her eyes and her mouth and her hands. It's kind of uh, reflecting her rediscovery of like her in that body. And I thought that was kind of a cool idea and that the execution was totally flawed and unsuccessful. But like, that's how I feel about all of uh, Fallen Angels is I really uh, generously think that there was a lot of cool intention there. And then a lot of just like self-owned and stupid flubs. But I appreciate the swings it was taking. And yet Wolverine. Wolverine, I do not appreciate the swings it's taking. Wolverine Ooh. is uh, Wolverine is mostly bad ideas that on paper I don't like, and then in execution, they're not, I don't like them either. Oh man! Right. Now, well, I feel like I got to step in and defend Wolverine here. Oh uh, yeah, I would love to hear anyone I, defend Wolverine. I will not have much of a spirited defense because <laughs> I firmly and truly believe we did not need a wolverine book i think this book should not have existed not because you know it shouldn't exist but i i didn't think we needed another wolverine book that wasn't laura kinney right uh, i yeah uh all I new wolverine by tom rather, Taylor, my favorite wolverine book ever yeah i would have much rather actually had a wolverine's book with her and logan and maybe even gabby that would have been fascinating Dokken can uh, come too. Oh shit! Yeah, all the Wolverines. Yeah, Sabretooth can't. He's in the pit. <laughs> Poor Sabretooth. Wow. I don't feel that bad. Uh, yeah, can't really feel bad for for Mister. Uh, I'm gonna do whatever the hell I want. Screw you. I'm gonna kill people. Yeah, he's an unrepentant murderer. And yeah, but I, I mean, I don't really think that Wolverine should have existed. But on the whole, it ha it's got some. It's got ideas that I think could be explored very well. They just haven't been. Ben, I don't know why Ben Percy hasn't been able to capture anything with this book. Like, yeah, I'm, it's kind of a nothing. I'm constantly book. kind of bored by it, and the whole pollen thing was kind of silly and ridiculous. And we're already doing that somewhere else. It didn't really need to be done. It could have been done on the pages of X Force, and I honestly think. Most of this could have been in the pages of X-Force. I'm interested in the vampire plot line. I want to see Wolverine fight vampires. I think that's awesome. Sure, he, he fights vampires really all the time. Lot. He doesn't really do a lot with that. And we've got this this mystery with the hypnosis uh, ghost lady. And I don't really know what's going on in the book. So that's why it's pretty far down for me. But I still think that it's got more legs than Fallen Angels ever had. And that's probably also because I still do not like Simon Kudransky's art on that book. It's muddy. I can't tell what's going on. Hill's writing it. The characters, I feel like I'm staring at boards and I want to just hit my head against a wall over and over again on every page. It's solipsistic. It's stuck in its own head. And none of the ideas... Past issue one, uh, they they weren't interesting at all to the character to me. Uh, I didn't know why these characters were being put in these situations. Why was Quanon getting all of these characters together to go fight some digital baddie in the middle of uh, some generic city that could have fallen out of Rosenberg's Punisher run? Oof. And um, so it it also never justified its own existence. Like Wolverine. Fallen Angels? Yeah, Fallen Angels 
Well, it failed oh, to like, justify its is... existence, but it had a it had a mission statement. It was about um the characters who are uh, don't feel like they can live in utopia, right? They're living in a peaceful, happy society, but these are people who are uh, inherently like their character is unhappy, and um, which is bullshit. <laughs> well, I think it's an interesting idea to explore. Right. That's well. That's where the execution fails. But I think that's a cool idea. Yes. Now, and and I think that that's um an idea that all the X Men books um have. There's this new status quo. They're living on Krakow. It's the dawn of X. Um, there's a lot of different. You know, some books explore resurrection, and some books explore the politics, and some books explore the lifestyle and how uh, the status quo is affecting everybody. And and Fallen Angels on its surface was supposed to. Now, what totally fails for me about Wolverine is that Wolverine could have been a Wolverine book two years ago. It could have been a Wolverine book five years ago or ten years ago. This could have been a Wolverine book in the 80s. Um, I mean, it couldn't have because Omega Red's in it and he didn't come around until like 92 or whatever. Mm -hmm. But uh, just this is such a generic Wolverine book. And the Krakoa stuff is such window dressing and has no bearing on anything. And this could have been a book – if you're going to have a Wolverine solo book, which I as you know, I assumed they would eventually. There's always a Wolverine solo book. But if you're going to have one, it should be about how living on Krakoa affects Logan or how that's different. Or you could explore that, but instead it's exploring how things are the same and how Wolverine leaves and then goes on random adventures that are disconnected from everything and everyone with boring – spy characters and like weird lumberjack characters it's just like the most token wolverine supporting cast and every issue has to make an excuse to get him away from the interesting stuff so he can go explore the boring stuff and then finally when there's something where on paper i would be like oh absolutely give me that book where omega red has become the herald of chernobyl dracula which is an awesome sentence and that sounds like the coolest pitch on paper it was boring as dishwater we never went. Yeah, it, it never went anywhere. He didn't even show up until the last page. Well, there's, so there's one issue after that, and then it just immediately cuts to something else. And there's nothing interesting about Omega Red. Or, they, you know, it just opens with they've kidnapped Wolverine. They make Wolverine blood amulets so they can be daywalkers. And then they're just doing something else random and generic. This Wolverine book is a failure of vision and execution. And Fallen Angels, to me, is only a failure of execution, but not a failure of vision. It had a really interesting premise that it squandered. So I think Wolverine has to be worse for me because Wolverine never had a reason to exist, never had any good ideas, and then even failed to do its thing that had been done 100 times before. It's like if you're going to tell the same story 100 times, you could at least be as good as the previous 99 times it's been told. That's fair. Wolverine. Really it's my it. worst X-Men book right now. Reading it is a chore. I want to not read it, but I have to because of the column. And maybe it's a blessing that Fallen Angels bowed out when it did. Yeah, I wonder that's if you would have felt this way if, if it had kept going. I probably would have. Because Fallen Angels, we kind of knew it was canceled by issue like two or three out of six. So at that point, I was like, oh, well, it's a shit show, but at least I uh, don't have to tolerate it for very long. Uh, but with Wolverine, I have no idea how long I'm going to be subjected to this, and nothing is happening. It's and just, it's Wolverine, uh, so you never know. He could be around forever. Maybe, maybe they'll, I was going to say, maybe they'll kill him off again, but this is the Krakoa era. No one dies. Um, well, except for uh, some people, but we'll get to that in a moment. Well, we'll get to that, yes. Um, okay, so going up the list, um, uh, do you have anything you want to say about it? Uh, what's the next book you have something to say about? Because my, my next big movement is my Fall of Excalibur at number nine. 
I think the my my biggest movement was well, I mean, X Force moved down a little, but that's because just nothing really happened, and I'm just not that interested in anything that's going on in the book right now. I don't want to watch Colossus be a Colossus dick. <laughs> so. Um, I will say it like uh, X Force has its moments. X Force isn't totally uh, irredeemable. I, I just think it's not a very good comic book. Like, yeah, uh, it's, it's just not interesting to me, and that's fine. It, it connects with other people. I miss Kasara's art too. No yeah, me to too. He's, he does a good job, but Kasara really helps keep me interested in the book. A lot of he brought a lot of personality to it that otherwise yeah. is. I, and I'm a real mark for X-Force. Like, I like X-Force books, typically. Um, mm-hmm. And this one is, like, really, if I had to rank all the X-Force books ever, which sounds like a great list that only I could participate in, um, <laughs> this would be pretty low on the list of all X-Force runs ever. This is just, like, a nothing run. There, there's some other ones that are unpleasant or uncomfortable, but I felt something, and this one I don't really feel much at all. Yeah. Well, my other... Big move was uh, Empire X-Men, which fell from my number three to number nine. And for me, it rose from number nine to number six. Yeah. Well, for me, the reason why it fell was, was those were those two interstitial issues. Issues two and three? Issues two and three. They were... All right, I guess. Loved issue felt, two. You f- I felt the committee... I loved Leah Williams' parts. You could see where the breaks in the writers were. But I mean, we I can theorize. I love Teeny Howard's parts. I wish it had a consistent artist across all four issues. And the mixing of writers just did not work for me. And every time they, a, a different writer came on to play with something, I was just like, all right, but this isn't, this isn't really interesting. This isn't really fun. It's not delivering on the promise of the first issue of being utterly ridiculous while also having kind of this you know grand feel to it like something big is happening even though that something big is plants versus zombies versus old ladies i think if you yeah the final final issue kind of brought brought some of that back and i think hickman kind of dragged everyone kicking and screaming to the finish line so that's why it 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 fell far for me because it did not quite capture the high of that first issue's utter bonkers premise. Um, as somebody who I know really enjoys X Men but doesn't have but is a, re- a recent arrival to the fandom, can I ask you a question? Yes. Um, ex- what did Explodey Boy mean to you? Because that was like a really weird deep cut. And I want to know what you thought of that. I have no fucking clue who that guy is, but he was so much fun. And the 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 pathos at the end with him talking to himself. Yeah. Best part of the comic. So do you remember I recommended that we read Worst X-Man Ever? Mm-hmm. And uh, you were reluctant because I think, uh, who's the writer of that? Max Bemis. Yeah, Max Bemis. Uh, you're not a big Max Bemis guy? Mm-hmm. Um, Explody Boy. Is, he never goes by that name, but he looks exactly like and has the same powers and personality as um, Bailey Hoskins, the main character from Worst X-Man Ever, which is not in the Marvel 616 universe. It's an alternate universe story. Mm-hmm. So for all intents and purposes, this seems to be uh, Bailey's introduction to the 616 universe. Really? 
Yes, and that was just a wild wow. deep cut. It grabbed this really good miniseries that I do. I wonder if it would. It, I, I think it's been phenomenal. I, I wonder if it would change your uh, your mind about Max Bemis a little bit. No. Although I haven't read a lot of his other stuff. <laughs> I, I, I can but, tell you now, it won't. But it might change my feeling on that book. Um. Well, you don't have any feeling on that book right now, so that should be exactly. easy to do. Um. But so that seemed to be Bailey Hoskins and that they were in, this was the way they're introducing him. And he, he has a completely different backstory without spoiling a uh, worst X-Man ever. Uh, his parents are not still alive, but they appear to be in this universe. He talks about uh, his dad's arthritis at one point in Empire X-Men 4. Um, He's got arthritis. I, yeah, I loved Empire X-Men all the way through. I thought it was a rollicking good time. I agree that it kind of had multiple personalities, but I loved all those personalities. So I had a, yeah, just like a delightful crackerjack of a miniseries. And so your other big move. Yeah, I guess I have to defend the fall of Excalibur a little bit. Yeah, yeah, you do. So I want to preface this by saying I still love Teeny Howard. She's one of my favorite Marvel creators right now. Um, and I do really love Excalibur, the, despite the fact that it dropped down to number nine. Number nine is still solidly in the threshold of I love every book from uh, in the top ten. Mm -hmm. um, but I think Excalibur was the most negatively impacted book from the major COVID delays. Yes. Excalibur had a bunch of momentum, and it was doing something weird and new. And then just taking four months off, I... I, I reread a bunch of it to catch up, so I remember what's going on, but a lot of my excitement has kind of waned, and I am not that – they're just – they've been in the middle of this storyline that I haven't been that interested in for a really, really long time. So I'm really optimistic that Excalibur is going to shoot back up the rankings when it starts something new, but as of this arc, I'm really impatient for uh, for Ten of Swords to start. Yeah, I, I'm kind of feeling – I'm feeling that too. I'm still really digging the complicated Excalibur stuff. And I like the month by month. I've read a lot of other Marvel books and DC books too. I don't know why, but between a couple, uh, there were a couple issues where I was like, did I miss an entire arc in the last month? So you think, but I haven't. Like the numbers definitely have gone up and they are, these are the post COVID books. I don't know what's going on. I don't know what. If it's just like my personal feelings on the book in that, you know, I'm just like, whoa, I'm lost. I just need to reread the previous issue and go, oh, no, this does completely transition into it. I'm just super out of it. So are you speculating a little bit that maybe um, the starting and stopping um, affected the creators, too? Like they had to stop and start their stories at some point and we're, we're getting scripts that well, were the, there was pencils down. Um, there were pencils down for, for a few months. But we don't know uh, how many how many months. Presumably, there were probably three ish months ahead, and that there was only about two ish months of no comics. I don't know. I don't know either. But but I imagine that disrupted a lot of their creative momentum too. Like, can yeah. you imagine if you were writing something every month and then you just had to stop for a while unexpectedly? I bet that would really mess you up. Yeah, I'm I'm sure there are parts where it's just like you can feel the roller coaster, feel them trying to spin their wheels back up too. Just in uh, case, especially in the editing process. Can I ask you about another X book? One more X book before we talk about uh, the one that we're going to spend our, the most time on, I think? Do it. Um, have you read the most recent New Mutants, which as of recording is New Mutants number 12? No, that's the one I have not read. 
All right. I did not care very much for that issue, and that's affecting my rankings. Interesting. Yeah, I haven't I haven't reached it yet. Um, I only just realized that I didn't actually read a New Mutants for this this ranking. Well, that's okay. But I I found it to be. I mean, we'll talk about it uh, next time then. But I found it. I liked that it was trying to say something political, but I thought it was kind of politically flaccid. It was very uh, both sidesy. That sounds like an Ed Brisson comic. Yeah, which is which unfortunate. Is un- which is unfortunate. Um, especially because I liked a lot of the character work in the writing. But mm-hmm. yeah, I, uh, I, and I again, I appreciate when writers take swings. And he was trying to write about something political, which uh, it it felt uh, there was like an energy to it. It was kind of like a crackling script, and then at the end, it just kind of. <laughs> All right. Well, before we get to our next and probably final X Men book, we're talking about. Uh, We're going to take a short break, and then we will be right back for some something we like to call the the halacha zone. Hello, podcast listeners. We're the hosts of the DC Three Cast. I'm Zach. I'm Vince, and I'm Brian. Each week, we discuss most of the new releases from DC Comics, focusing mainly on Rebirth, Wildstorm, and Young Animal. We also look at the news of the week, discuss the film and television adaptations of DC material, and dig into industry rumors. We've also had a number of DC creators on our show, like Scott Snyder, Jim Lee, Christopher Priest, Steve Orlando, and Joshua Williamson. So, if you like Borat jokes, no bad Dandadio impressions, this is bad, what the f- and an in-depth look at DC each week, join us every Wednesday morning at multiversitycomics.com, Apple Podcasts, or your podcatcher of choice. Come get Jurgens with us hello and welcome to the halacha zone i don't i don't know what the soft humming you're doing is elias but um for our listeners who might not know from uh that very elegant and graceful way i hit my chet sounds elias and i are uh both of the tribe we are both jewish and we had a lot of feelings about a recent issue of x-men that had a bunch of uh, Jewish content. I'm trying to say this as neutrally as possible because I'm trying not to imply that we uh, liked or didn't like it because I think that's what the discussion's about. Yes. And for anyone who, who does not like getting deep into the weeds with uh, Talmudic discussion, don't worry. We're both not that well-versed in the actual verses. We're versed enough. Yeah, I was going to say, like, uh, is that true? I've read some Talmud, but uh, yeah, I don't think I'm versed you in the couldn't, verses. You couldn't quote from, uh, like, three... Uh, wow. See, clearly clearly, I'm, I haven't studied enough Gemara to actually know it. If you gave me a number, I would not, and like a chapter, I would not be able to tell you what that Talmud verse is. It's true. Um, I do know a guy who uh, closes his eyes while he rides the New York City subway and just listens to Talmud to like distract himself from the sins of the city. And I think that guy is weird, but he's interesting <laughs> to talk to about stuff. Um, kind of a family friend. Anyway, uh, the issue we're talking about is Marauders number 11, which is written by Jerry Duggan um, with art by Stefano Caselli, colors by Edgar Delgado, and lettered by VCs Corey Petit. And as always, Tom Muller does the design work. Um, I guess my first question to you, Elias, and I should have looked this up going in. I actually don't know if Jerry Duggan is Jewish or not. I don't believe he is. He kind of uh, looks Jewish. That's a compliment, Jerry. You got a beautiful Jewish beard. He does have a good beard. But I, I am not sure either. I don't want to make any uh, assumptions. Holy shit, he's from Ridgewood. Oh my god, you're from Ridgewood. 
No, but I work there. Yeah, but you that yeah, that's crazy. You you and uh, and Jerry Duggan should chill. I guess. No, well, he lives in Los Angeles now. That makes sense. Um, I, I don't know, man. If you're from uh, if you're born in New York City and raised in Ridgewood, I feel like your odds of being Jewish are like better than fifty percent. Well, maybe Jerry not. Duggan, if you're out there, we'd love to talk to you about Jewish stuff. But right now, we're going to talk at you about Jewish stuff. That's the way of the pod. Um, I just got a cat tail in my face. That sounds fun. My cats are sleeping peacefully together right now, which is not their usual mo. Um, okay, so I had uh, there was something that really excited me about uh, Marauders number eleven, but there was you had there was a bunch of um, you had a bunch of questions. You had a bunch of uh, yeah. So, so I uh, had a lot of a bunch of questions from the start, and I think opening this up to a wider discussion of Kate and her Jewishness and how writers write that. And this goes to yeah. a larger a larger question of how do both Jewish and non-Jewish writers, but mostly non-Jewish writers, write Jewish characters in uh, traditionally Jewish characters. Because uh, I, had, I had a whole piece on Harley Quinn, the show, and I was very mad at it. And then I recently, or sort of recently, read the Women Write About Comics review of both this issue and the issue 12 cover. And they made a lot of really good points, a few that I hadn't really thought about and a few that I was like, eh, I, I kind of disagree on that. Um, so first, I guess we'll, we'll start with the, the positive things that I think we both agree we really liked, which was the use of uh, Gamatria and the appearance of Chai, which is life. So... In, in Judaism, for those who don't know, every letter, in Hebrew specifically, every letter corresponds to a different number. So Aleph is one, Bet, uh, bet is two, and so on and so on. Uh, once you get to 10, it goes up by tens. So it's 10, 20, 30 instead of 11, 12. So words have their own numerical significance and numbers have their own meaning. So the word chai, chet, yud, uh, is 18, which is why 18 is such a important number for a lot of Jews. And it is referenced at least twice in this issue. I get into this in a big way with charts and images uh, in the latest Mutantversity column, which will be up by the time this podcast airs. So Wait. if you want to see panels and you want to see some uh, analysis and you want to have a chart to help you uh, with this conversation, um, uh, some people are visual learners. And it's cool. It's cool stuff. Yeah, I really like that that kind of stuff. It could be complete nonsense like a lot of numerology seems to be but it's also you can do a lot of really cool things with it especially if it's done intentionally um yes but uh a, a lot of people where i know a lot of people encounter this uh if they're not jewish but our friends are related to jewish people is typically when you're giving a gift a gift of money for like a wedding or a bar mitzvah or a birthday or something you give it in multiples of 18 um mm -hmm. to to represent uh the long and prosperous and happy life uh my girlfriend who is not jewish by birth is really into this and whenever she's given her uh nieces or cousins uh graduation presents or everything she always uses multiples of 18 because she thinks because she does like that superstition and she thinks it's rad i do it a lot too yeah it's just like it's, it's like a fun yeah. superstition it, it's one of those things where it's not hurting anybody to do multiples of 18 and um and it's and symbolic it's of you know, wishing people happiness and prosperity. Yeah. 
Um, so specifically in terms of how it manifests in Marauders in the main way is this is the issue where Kate Pride, who was murdered a few issues ago by Sebastian Shaw, um, has been having a lot of weirdness where she doesn't interact with the miracles of Krakoa like the other mutants do. And specifically, uh, as far as this is concerned, Kate is not there. The five mutants who are in charge of resurrection are unable to properly revive Kate. And they try numerous times and they uh, don't succeed. And they're ready to give up until uh, Emma Frost and Nightcrawler uh, beg them, try just one more time, or maybe this time will be different. And it, and it works on uh, this attempt, despite all the odds. And afterwards, you see, see a conversation between the five and uh, Gold Balls, also known as uh, Egg, says, Egg. Uh, it took us a hundred times, but it was still worth it. And Tempest says, Actually, it was only 18 times, but who's counting? And then Nightcrawler smiles a mysterious smile and says, 18, is that right? And Hope asks him, yeah, is something wrong? And he says, no, not at all. And he doesn't explain himself. But the only, uh, the only meaning of this, uh, I, as far as I know, there can't be, I can't see any other meaning for this, is that it's a reference to Kate's Judaism and the fact that, uh, that 18 is the number of life in Judaism and that it took 18 tries to revive her to life. Yeah. Quite, and the other simple. time is in uh, Charles Xavier, Charles Xavier's Xavier. I never know how to say it. Professor Charles, X. Professor X's speech to everyone uh, at the funeral there where he ends it with uh, to life, which is L'chaim, which is the conjugation of chai into a verb that's right um now i, I think i you know it's fun because it's representation and representation is important and we're jewish and we like jewish shit but there's a reason why i specifically like its use in this story and right. that is that um i feel like it may it makes the story feel mythic in a way where they don't ever put too fine a point on it it's not that now jewish characters will always be revived on the 18th attempt or anything there's not a rule about this it's just that um you you could write it up to luck or you could write it up to god or you could write it up to destiny you don't know what it is but in like in big mythological stories everything is significant and everything um points towards the eventual outcome and in this case the just of course it would take 18 times uh kate is jewish and uh and that coincidence is going to happen on the 18th time because of the hand of providence or whatever you want to call it and i don't know if there's going to be any fallout i don't know if this is going to affect nightcrawler's uh still in the works mutant religion but it made the revival seem momentous in a way that if they just tried a random number of times or if they literally tried a hundred times and then it worked a hundred times, it wouldn't have felt as significant. It just gave this great poetry um, and and nod to mysticism. And I think that's cool. I like that stuff. And Nightcrawler and, and Kate have had a very close friendship for a long time. So him being the one to recognize it is... Very nice, because even though he is a very devout Catholic, he still knows about this tradition because his friend Kate has informed him about it because they've had conversations about it, presumably, because it's important to her. And he's a student of religions. He loves learning about the religions of all his close mm -hmm. uh, friends and companions. Um, and yeah, Nightcrawler and Kate are probably um, two of, I mean, 
they're both also very close with Wolverine, but the two of them were the believed they were the only surviving X-Men for a long chunk of the 80s while they were on the Excalibur team. They thought all of the rest of the X-Men had died in a battle in Texas and they were ready to move on and they were the last family to each other basically. They were they became like brother and sister in that story. Yeah. Um good stuff. But you, I, I'm trying not to call uh, your your issues nitpicks because I don't want to uh, belittle them. But there yeah. was a there were some small things that uh, that rubbed you the wrong way. Yeah, there there are a few a few that I didn't even notice from before, and a couple that that I did notice here. The first of which being there there the, none of the other Jewish characters show up. None of them are the ones who recognize or even like share a look with with Nightcrawler in the scene why the question there does not become one of the scene itself but one of why did duggan not choose a jewish or half jewish character to be there to be with kate why did he not choose to do a jewish funeral because kate again this is something that's important to her and we are commanded to be buried in the ground and not cremated I don't get why so many Jewish characters keep getting cremated. Now, this is not a, a thing but that bothers me as much as you. The Viking funeral is very uh, powerful. It's a very powerful image. It's a very powerful it Happens in Lord of the Rings. And there's the whole commandment uh, from them of... No one, there are no graveyards on Krakoa. No one will be buried. No X Men will be buried. On yeah, Krakoa. a lot. But that uh, feels kind of disingenuous from the people on the council. A lot of the um, the funeral ritual, I, my, you know, my interpretation in the story was that, uh, and this is different than the the authorial intent. But my interpretation of the story was that. This is still the X-Men figuring out how they're going to do a funeral in a, in a country where they don't believe that death needs to happen, but there's this weird exceptional situation. And so um, totally eliminating the body so that as to not have there be like weird magical confusion makes sense to yeah. me because like we're seeing zombies over at Empire X-Men and, uh, and burning that body off the shore of the island itself seems to make a lot of sense. But I do know that this cremation thing bothers you a lot. It doesn't bother me in the same way. I think yeah. it bothers you for uh, Holocaust reasons. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is going to probably be a transition to the other thing that, uh, that you got questions about. Yeah. But um, I know Jews who are into cremation, mm -hmm. and uh, it's not an unheard of practice, no. uh, although it's, it's uh, definitely a lot less common. And... And it is weird. It seems kind of thoughtless, or it seems like the the thinking about this is inconsistent. He knew the high thing. He knew the number 18 would be really cool, so he did that. But then he didn't really think about how to um, incorporate Judaism into her funeral, which was completely devoid of any uh, reference to Judaism, even though that's like a religious ritual. Instead, it became this like pseudo-Krakoan fake religious thing. Yeah, and no, like, actually, no one said the Kaddish... No one. Um, the, the who are the thing. other Jewish characters who you're thinking of? Because I can't think of any Jewish characters besides Magneto who are on Krakoa. Iceman is half Jewish. Iceman's half Jewish? I did not yeah, know that. Bobby Drake. Um, that dude. 
there are not that many. He's real waspy. Uh, you know, they te- technically, well, they're, they're not on there, Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch, because Polaris. 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 of them. But they're not like, on Krakoa. Polaris? Yeah, I said Polaris. Um, Legion is not on Krakoa. We don't know where Legion is. Oh, we haven't seen him since Age of X-Men? Yeah, we haven't seen him since Age of X-Men. And in the first issue of Power of House of X, uh, he's listed as missing on a list of mutants. Hmm. Um, and Polaris, while uh, maybe legally Jewish because of uh, – now she's confirmed to be Magneto's daughter – was raised by a Catholic foster family. And, I, and she's been shown to be a practicing Catholic every time she's done anything religious. Um, and then a like uh, Wiccan different conversation. Yeah, that that is a different conversation. Wiccan is um definitely Jewish, and but he's, um, not, but he's not a mutant. Uh, not he might be a mutant technically. Uh, he is. Well, I guess he wouldn't be, or or I don't know. These are magic genetics we're talking These about things here. These are weird. Yeah, but um, Wiccan was list. Uh, Wiccan has been uh, counted as a mutant in the past. He's definitely not on Krakoa though. And then, like, I could think of other um, Jewish Marvel characters, but I th- we just ran through the mutants I can think of. Yeah. So it's not like there are many, and it's not a huge oversight necessarily, but it's emblematic of – and this, this is true of many underrepresented cultures in Marvel and DC and in general – it's the way they are represented in subsequent appearances or even in first appearances in ways that people don't think about and that you don't necessarily notice until someone else points it out that, oh, that is something that drags a character back to the cultural meta-narrative status quo uh, where all characters have straight hair, and there are certain colors or their nose shapes are, are a very, very specific way in the way they're drawn or they're written in ways that are supposed to be, you know, you know, just regular people. But the regular people cut out is white, Christian, usually Protestant, uh, male, but that's a little bit more, you know, fraught and then getting into questions of sexuality and gender and all that. And it's, it's tricky to find that balance between being respectful without being, you know, overly stereotypical and also having narratives that aren't completely grounded in the identity as, as the narrative. Instead of being a part of the character, it just becomes the character. Finding that balance is hard for most writers in general, especially if you are not necessarily of the culture. And I don't know about Jerry, Jerry Duggan. He may be of the culture, but it doesn't necessarily feel that way. And it definitely doesn't feel like the artists have reflected that in the same way. Like someone pointed out that her curly hair is important because of Ashkenazi Jews. Curly hair is a, is a, a, it's a dominant trait. And ever since she's come back, she's had straight hair. It's a minor thing in terms of design. And most people wouldn't think about it. But when you think about when you start talking about it in, in a more academic way, it becomes important. 
Well, especially because, um, I mean, her hair is kind of wavy like mine now, but mm. her hair was like big, curly, very um, overtly a particular Jewish look that uh, we were all pretty yeah. familiar with. And that just seems to have kind of vanished, although it didn't vanish in this era, but uh, years ago, and we haven't gone back to it. But you go yeah. back to the uh, any good 80s story about Shadowcat, and she's got it's like glorious curls. Yeah. So the other the other big thing that I didn't even that didn't even click just because it's not it, it is a little bit more complicated than you know we tend to make it seem uh is Kate's are Kate's tattoos on she her got hands. The second issue. And this she gets them in the second issue. Um I don't remember exactly what they say. They say hold fast. There we go. And it's cool. It matches her pirate look. It's a really striking image. But also, this is a Jewish character with tattoos on her hands. And Magneto doesn't even say anything. Like, he doesn't even go, I don't like tattoos. Like, it's not, which, which is the only good line. Me because in... he is explicitly from Auschwitz, which is where they did the tattoos. Um, I have to double check because the, the the comics have gone back and forth on Magneto's World War II experiences a bunch of times. Um, is, he, is he no longer a Holocaust survivor? Yeah, he um he's definitely a Holocaust survivor. They've done weird things to Magneto to uh, maintain that history, including turning him into a baby who Moira raised at one point. What? That happens in the late Silver Age, early Bronze Age, whenever Moira gets introduced. So it has to be Bronze Age, but. A lot of the Magneto stuff that you're thinking of is probably from the Fox movies, from when Ian McKellen played him, because the Auschwitz stuff was very prominent there. And I'm not sure if Auschwitz was ever mentioned in his backstory uh, before those movies. And there's the only good line in X-Men 3, X-Men United. Is that what that movie's called? No, The Last Stand. X-Men 3, The Last Stand. is uh, there, there's, a, there's like a cool part where a character who's apparently supposed to be uh, Callisto asks him where his tattoos are and um he uh shows her his holo his uh, Auschwitz tattoo and he says um that he he doesn't think that tattoos are cool and it's a it's a real uh chilling well-delivered ian mckellen line where he's kind of calling out the youth for thinking that they're the only ones who know how to be activists when he's been doing this for 100 years mm -hmm. um but again I thought, I thought uh magneto testament established where he was that's what I, ha I have to reread Testament, but that came out after the movies. Mm. Uh, and I think that was to retcon a lot of the stuff people liked from those movies into his backstory. Gotcha. Um, which doesn't it'll make it illegitimate. It's just an interesting uh, trans way that these things go down sometimes. Yeah. Um, and it should, so I think it should, we should mention here that, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, because uh, we have very different Jewish educations. A lot of mine happened at Jewish socialist camp. Um. But from what I understand, the the no tattoos in Judaism thing isn't actually uh, strictly based on a long-held interpretation of Jewish law. It's a cultural thing that developed in the United States after World War II because of uh, Holocaust tattoos. Specifically, the, the oft-repeated idea that um, Jews with tattoos aren't allowed to be buried in Jewish cemeteries is complete hogwash. That's never been true. Correct. Uh, there are there are translations of specific verses in uh, Leviticus, which, once again, have a lot of translation issues. Uh, 
in general and sparks much debate, which I enjoy watching and listening to these debates. Uh, <laughs> but you're not supposed to make permanent marks on your skin because it is, or or your body because that is the body that God created, and you know you're not supposed to mess with that. And That's certain certain translations specifically say uh, tattoo. But what they mean by tattoo depends on the translation of the word and 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 all of that, uh, and it depends on on what denomination of rabbinic scholars you're looking at because it is a more recent uh, interpretation, specifically tattoos, and most likely the tattoo thing is, you know, bullshit because then where would the Auschwitz survivors be buried? Right, that's what comes up a lot. Be buried with the tattoo. <laughs> But it is it it has become taboo because of that, and but part part of the other reason why they did tattoos was because it kind of like shearing of beards. It was a sign of disrespect, right? They're meant to be demeaning. Yeah. So fascists are real uh real creative with that bullshit. Yeah. The, um, I think my big issue is not that she gets tattoos. Because it could be seen as her trying to assert a statement and potentially reclaim this autonomy. And more so that there is no discussion in the book. And there's no, it, it doesn't feel like it was informed. It was made because it looked cool. Um, now, I don't know. I said earlier that I know Jews who... Um who are into cremation, by which I mean, I actually can't think of a specific example of a Jew who I know who has wanted to and been cremated. Everyone I know has been buried in a coffin in the ground. But I do know Jews who are alive and, you know, in our age, in our early, late 20s, early 30s, who um, do want to be cremated. Um, I do, however, know tons of Jews with tattoos. And more than that, I know Jews with Jewish and Hebrew tattoos. Mm -hmm. I've got friends with uh, Hebrew poems written on them. I've got Israeli cousins who are tatted like you would not believe. I got one yep. close friend who's just got a huge um, tree of life, the Sephiroth, across her back. Mm -hmm. um, like a big tattoo. So uh, Judaism and tat uh, the the idea uh, you're right that Magneto kind of would be a great stand in for a stodgy Jew who um, has a stricter interpretation of that. But Kate Pride being uh, she's from Dearborn, Michigan. So being like a Michigan Midwestern Jew who had really a rough time with her family and uh, is discovering her interpretation of her heritage. Um, the tattoos thing, I have a real easy time believing. The Viking funeral, you're right, and especially because if you've been following Elias's work about this recently, it has come up an inordinate amount of times that there have been a lot of Jews who seem to be casually getting cremated, and like one would be a whatever to me, but once you see the pattern, it's kind of crazy. Um, but yeah. Um, but the tattoo thing uh, seems really in character with Kate, and one of the reasons why Marauders has been um, so passionately my favorite book of this era is I love Kate. She's a really important character to me, and I've said this in the past on this show, but I feel like we've had a long time where a lot of the writers are middle-aged men who grew up thinking of Kate as like an object of desire, and they write her as such, and she, I, I feel like a lot of her agency as a character has been taken away. And Duggan has been so aggressively returning her agency to her that I like 
what the tattoo says about that. That seems really in line with the wild child renegade Kate who grew up to be a messy pirate captain who wants to save people and be a badass superhero. So I'm really into the tattoo specifically, but I hear you and uh, like more Jewish shit would be better than less Jewish shit. So have a conversation with Magneto and have her, her get to have that passionate speech to him. I think that would be rad. Yeah. Although maybe don't just boil it all down to a menorah. Right. So I was going to say, though, this is especially um, one of the reason why I liked the high thing so much is because that felt so specifically Jewish in a way that felt um, really true to the story that was being told. And I was very not a fan of, I believe it was um, in the Age of X-Men Apocalypse and the Extracts miniseries yeah. by Tim Seeley. Mm -hmm. um, that... Uh, where they're in a world where religion has been erased and Kate finds a menorah and she just feels like she's been uh, this menorah calling to her, which I find extremely eye-rolling. I also, um, I'm really sick of a menorah, which is the symbol of a holiday that I don't much care for as Jewish holidays go. Hanukkah, I don't like it. I think it gets a, an oversized, uh, leaves an oversized impression on the minds of people because of its proximity to Christmas and that's doubly messed up. Yeah, it's, it's such a fascinating holiday, though. Sure. None of, the, none of the books are considered canon because the rabbis didn't like that a lot of it was about the Maccabees revolting and having a war. And so they really, really emphasized the miracle part of the oil, the godly miracle, versus the miracle of small group defeating big army with elephants. Right. Which yeah. Is the... Fascinating. But I always operate on once I understood Hanukkah beyond the um, the oil metaphor or the, the the oil miracle rather. Um, I once I like I knew a bit more about the story and who the Maccabees were. I just got to the understanding that I would have been the type of Jew that the Maccabees would have killed to make an example out of me because I probably would have been into Greek culture and uh, going I don't know eating olives and feta cheese sometimes. And they would have been like olives and feta cheese is the food of the enemy. And then they would have just like flayed me alive and put me in the town square. Yeah, so, they were pretty messed up. Yeah, Maccabees did messed up stuff. To, and it was to the uh, people that they thought weren't Jewish enough. And I think that's not cool. So I'm like a little bit um, lukewarm on that holiday in general. And because Christmas issues and Christmas specials are such a part of American culture, Hanukkah specials get made too. But you don't see as many Passover specials and you never see a Purim special. You never see a... a you know, you know, you never see a uh, Kate lighting some Shabbos candles, and, and at the end of that apocalypse story, she stabs Apocalypse with the menorah, which was a really weird look to me. Although yeah. kind of in line with the Maccabees, uh, if I'm being honest. But if she's gonna use some Judaica to stab a weird hypocritical uh, despot, stab him with some nice Shabbos candles, I say. Stab him with a, a mezuzah. Stab him with the the pointer for the Torah. It's perfect. Uh, yeah, stab him with the yod from the Torah. Just like yeah. uh, there's plenty of stabbable Judaica you could be using here, and I'm so sick of uh, of just uh, seeing Kate Pride and lighting the menorah as the extent of her Jewish identity. It happens again and again, and so this high thing felt fresh and actually related to the story. And everything you're calling for is you're saying, but you could do more, and I'm a hundred percent with you. Do as much as possible, but I love this, and I think this is such a good step forward from the recent stuff we've gotten, which is really repetitive and samey. Yeah. I hope Duggan, Duggan does more and continues to delve and, and brings up these conversations. 
it'd be i it would be nice to have the have her and like nightcrawler talk yeah, I, I'm still optimistic that something like that could happen. And Duggan, I also just, like, that dude surprises me at every turn. I keep on thinking I have him figured out what he's like as a writer, and then he does a series that's completely unlike anything he's ever done, and I'm really into it. Yeah, so I, sometimes I, um, it's great, sometimes it's okay, but it's always always something different. Yeah, he always tries something different. And a lot of them, I, I've really liked uh, Duggan's work, so, and this is my favorite thing he's ever written by a lot. But he went from being the the funny Deadpool guy to doing all sorts of different types of superhero books. And I I think he kind of um, is a bit of an unsung hero. I think a lot of people don't um, appreciate his work as much as he deserves, in my humble opinion. Speaking of other events, yeah, it is time. So the Empire event has wrapped up, mostly. The, the aftermath issues we don't really care about because they, they're not part of the event. We're, we're ignoring them. Uh, we make a return to them if they end up being really essential, but um, yeah, yeah. not. If, maybe. Uh, I'm not, uh, not holding my breath. It's going to be like, what are you doing? <laughs> Just do it now. <laughs> but um, so. Empire was the big, supposed to be the big summer event for, or spring, spring summer event for Marvel. Every uh, time in the middle of the year, Marvel likes to do a big crossover event where yeah. a lot of their uh, big uh, stories intersect, usually around one villain or situation or idea. And I would say, tell me, we talked about this on a previous episode, but like nine times out of ten, they're pretty garbage. Yeah, nine times out of ten, they're very garbage. And for a while, there was a moratorium on these, and then it came back with War of the Realms, which was excellent. One of the best ever. One of the best in a long, long time. And have there been any other big events since? Oh, there was Absolute Carnage, which was okay. Had Stegman art, which is very good. I guess but, they've, they've been a little bit more localized because there was Absolute Carnage. Nice. Yeah, which uh, that had some other tie-ins, but it didn't disrupt a lot of books. And um, House of X Powers of 10 was treated like a big event, but that didn't disrupt anything. Well, until it ended. Right, and then it, well, and then it just was a good book that other writers wanted to, um, to include in their vision of their own books. Yeah. But uh, yeah, the, the, uh, War of the Realms was the most recent big thing where other comics stopped telling the story they were telling so that Squirrel Girl could team up with Ratatusk. And, um, God, I love that tie-in. Yeah, which was excellent. And... Um, I'm trying to remember some of the other really good tie-ins. And uh, Miles Morales had to uh, cross the country with a baby. And, uh, oh, almost all the tie-ins were great. If you want a full rundown, read my column Worthy from forever ago. It's a good column, and uh, it's a good guide if you want to get into War of the Realms, which is a good event. Just it lots is. of good stuff happening here. <laughs> um, but we're talking about um, Empire. That's Empire with a Y. And Marvel announced that a while ago. It seemed pretty intriguing. Uh, we were talking about it in the early days of us being on this show, but it was implied to be uh, two things intersecting, um, which is a sequel to the Kree Scroll War, which was the first book we read for our book club, and it was um, it was supposed to be about Hulkling finally embracing his destiny as the emperor of both the Kree and the Scroll, because he is half Kree, half Scroll which we talked about a little bit in our second book club episode, which related to Young Avengers, his first appearance. But 
<laughs> Empire <laughs> ended up not really being that much about it. I mean, not to say it wasn't at all about those things, but uh, it was actually more about um, a race of plant aliens invading the Earth and the Kree and the Skrull getting embroiled in that and a lot of other characters getting caught up in the struggle of these plant people. Yeah. Then these plant people are called the Kotanti. I have no fucking clue where they're from. They're somewhere in the, the universe before this. They have something to do with swordsmen. Apparently, they're a big Avengers character. They're, they're associated with the... Um, they were an alien race that were oppressed by the Kree um, many years ago, and they've showed up sporadically since. Yeah. Kind of as a, as a victimized group that the Avengers need to defend against the Kree militarism. So, basically, we knew jack shit about them, <laughs> and we did not realize we should have prepared, which is unfortunate and I think a little bit emblematic of what went wrong with this event, but I'm showing my hand a little. First, a little yeah, bit Yeah, I disagree more. with that. I think it's what was, what was the most successful to me about this event, but go ahead. Ooh. I'm sorry. Ooh. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to, to first address a couple things specifically yeah. around the scheduling. So, COVID ended up basically royally fucking this event for a number of reasons the first of which being it just destroyed the release schedule and with uh, these events release schedules are so important because there's so many moving parts and you don't want to put out and the issues all refer to each other so if you put one out too early it could spoil something from a main issue which might be more important and there's just like a lot of these things seem pretty hard to organize yeah, so let me tell you, it was a mess. It was a mess. Secret Secret Wars, which is the last event that I really can think had had this problem, was always late. Bunch of issues late. So they can't, as we brought up before, they canceled every book, released a bunch of uh, tie-in, not tie-in, uh, miniseries to replace all the mainline books, and then the main universe came back. The main universe came back two months before the final issue dropped so the entire 616 universe had moved on before the event had completed which is not a good look but it happened more often than it should yeah empire had the opposite problem it wrapped up before its tie-ins finished which is not every issue released so in the back of every issue is a tie-in as a you know a chart and it's divided up by phases presumably each chunk um, releasing together within a couple a week or so, and maybe one or two could you know move a week and it wouldn't matter. Like the Captain Marvel tie-in would move, but I think at one point like Empire number four had come out before the tie-ins that were supposed to come out when Empire two came out, and also because of COVID they canceled a lot of tie-ins. They, I mean, they canceled a bunch of books that had uh, lower sales would make me sad because I was following about half of those. And I don't know what tie-ins they canceled. Uh, I don't remember the list of what they announced, uh, as well as I don't know which main main books were supposed to have tie-ins that then didn't, which probably for some of those books was a sigh of relief because they could get on with their story without having to deal with Empire. But that, that, was, that was about it with the tie-ins a rattle in the mouth specifically isn't important but what's interesting about that is that or what's interesting to me is that i feel like after the so one of the weird things that's going to uh color every opinion i have about empire is i'm so curious about the the past the present and the future by which i mean 
in the past, they marketed it to be one thing. And the marketing of comics always feels very important when you're following them month to month. And then uh, the release schedule and the way the books affect, uh, informed each other and affected each other also was pretty messed up. And that made the story a little bit hard to follow. And that makes it in the present, uh, change, changes how you feel about the books. But what I'm curious about is a lot of events that are stricken by these things, if the core story is good and you go back and read them years later, um, they hold up much better than when you're worried about uh, marketing and what people said or or they don't, but like it's impossible. The only interesting part about Secret Empire, a very boring recent event, is that uh, Secret Empire was very politically controversial. But as we move farther from that political moment, the story doesn't uh, have any energy because it was only fueled by the controversy. Yeah. Whereas something like Infinity, I think the marketing of Infinity, by, which was a Jonathan Hickman Avengers event, the, the marketing of that was pretty confusing. It wasn't clear what that event was going to be like. But if you go back and read it now, it's actually a really solid story. And all the questions of, did we need to interrupt this and that book? Did this Was this worth it? Did this live up to the hype? Are irrelevant now. It's just like a cool outer space war story. Yeah. And it's decently understandable as one solid chunk. So I wonder if they make a big hardcover of Empire and they they put the in a special order and they include some of the tie-ins but not others. If it's going to read really well or really poorly, I, I honestly don't know. But I can tell you right now, I think it's going to read poorly. I think it's going to read well. Ooh, well, how, I guess we might have to check in in like a year if we remember. I'll make a note in my. Uh, I'll put a calendar reminder in my phone. Um. Yeah. Okay, so we talked about what Empire was in. Can I talk a little bit about what it ended up being about? Sure. Yeah. So Don't forget the subtitle. Uh, what's the subtitle? It's Avengers Fantastic Four Empire. I would love to forget that subtitle. That subtitle is almost more garbage than the title itself. But as I, as I, everyone knows who listens to our show, I hate names. I hate all names. Names are bad, and people shouldn't That's have. I force all the names on him. <laughs> um i abdicate responsibility anyway <laughs> empire seemed but like we said it was supposed to be it seemed like it was going to be about the kree and the scrolls and then it seemed like it was going to be about hulkling which i was into because i love when hulkling story moves forward and then it turns out it was about these guys called the kotati now after issue one i was very uncomfortable with a couple things about the kotati specifically mm -hmm. that if i was to describe what so if someone who doesn't read uh comics and they don't know who the crees and the scroll are was like so what's this comic about it's about a group of alien refuge or aliens who poses refugees to arrive on a planet in a caravan but secretly end up being genocidal terrorists yep and um i don't know how that got away from the writers because i firmly believe that that is not the message that they wanted to uh a spouse in their comic like that's very opposed to the what i know of the politics of dan slot and al ewing although i know there's a lot of people who aren't happy with dan slot's politics but they're not that he's not a a refugee alarmist um that's not like his what he's about um and it was made further uncomfortable by the fact that the kotati stylistically are like really like aztec mayan inspired um there's like a lot of um you know, now that I'm saying this out loud, I don't know the right words to describe the different garments, but they look a lot like what you see in, like, comic book Aztec stuff. Yes. Yeah, stereotypical 
beads, uh, feathers. Stereotypical Latin America, South American civilizations from pre-Columbian exchange. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that, so immediately All I was merged like, together and meant to represent some Orientalist idea of the other and their. Yeah. I actually think we're technically using Orientalist wrong, but the idea of Orientalist. I need to reread Saeed's book. <laughs> yeah, I need to reread that too. I haven't read that since grad school. No, yeah, it, it's specifically Asia. Yeah, I, I thought that to be the case. But anyway, so after issue one, where all of this gets revealed, I was pretty uncomfortable and turned off by Empire, and um, I was not looking forward to reading it, although I was obligated to because I knew we'd have to talk about it on the podcast in some way. But Empire ended up being about a couple of interesting things. One of them is that the main character wasn't any of the people we've mentioned yet. It was a Kotati, uh, or a half-Kotati, half-human, named Sequoia, who goes by Koi. And um, Koi ended up being the core of the entire book. He is believed by his people to be what they call the Celestial Messiah. And... Um, and it, he, it's up to him to lead his people in this big invasion where they're trying to kill all animal life in the universe and replace it with plant life, which is a very comic book event kind of plot. And he's kind of made to be a foil to Hulkling, where Koi was raised to be um, very aggro, very violent, and very uh, grandiose. And Hulkling was raised to be kind and humble. And uh, the two of them are, are presented as foils to each other. Um, and that ended up being what the series was about. It ended up having to do nothing with what they said it was going to be about, and it ended up not really having to do a lot with the secret evil refugee caravans. It was about these two guys who were raised differently, who were put into similar positions, and like, what do they do? And it was, and I, I thought that that was the interesting part of the story was the character study of the differences between um, Hulkling and Sequoia. And then the other aspect of it is that Al Ewing and Dan Slott were the two writers of this uh, series. And we should give the rest of the credits in a second. But um, something that Al Ewing does that I always love is Al Ewing, from what I understand, is not a big comic book reader. He knows all this trivia that he can rattle off the top of his head, but he has a meticulous research process. And so a lot of the plot points in Empire were these like deep cut old Avenger stories that had been dropped in the 70s, like way back in the day. And like um, specifically regarding the characters Mantis, as seen in the uh, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 movie, although she doesn't really resemble that character much at all, um, and Swordsman, who was uh, an early Avengers character who hasn't been seen in many years, and... Yeah, and there's like a lot of complicated stuff, and I don't know if it's that interesting of us to parse like swordsman and he dies, it gets replaced by a plant, but then he got the memories. This is like comic book stuff like that. But I like it when Ewing uses old continuity to um, inform new stories. I find that he writes it very well in a way that's uh, presented uh, that you don't have to have read those old stories to understand it. He's writing it to to teach you about the old story, and it makes the story feel weightier because it. Since it draws from the past, you feel like it's going to continue affecting the future. Yeah. Um, do we want to give those credits really quick uh, for Empire? Yep. So the art is by Valerio Schiti, and it's colored by Marte Gracia and lettered by Joe Caramagna. All heavy hitters, by the way. That's like a great creative team, I think. Yeah. And it's a very shiny book, which yeah. 
sometimes I really like, and sometimes I'm like, well, this definitely, I'm going to look back on this in 10 years and be like, that was that 2010s look. 2020s, baby. Like, the 2020s. Early 2000s and go, that's that early 2000s look. Look at all that bloom. Yeah. Um, what, so you, you're much cooler on this than me. Did you hate it or you just, uh, did, you didn't do nothing yet? I didn't hate it. It had, it had a lot of ideas that could have worked. And I think part of my problem has to do with the way it all played out as well as not the marketing, but the setup. So I agree with that. From, from the start. The title is Avengers Fantastic Four Empire. It's a stupid title, but that informs the narrative. And it tells us the Avengers and the Fantastic Four are both very important. Both the Avengers and the Fantastic Four had a zero with issue leading into the first Empire issue, which told the story from the Avengers and the Fantastic Four's perspective. All of this was supposed to be a damn smokescreen so that when the Kotanti turn evil in big air quotes, uh, we're all surprised as well as the characters and then the whole the whole dynamic shifts yeah and there's I, also there was miniseries empire avengers and empire fantastic four yeah and that happened but that was that's kind of incidental because like empire avengers isn't actually focusing on the avengers that go into space it's focusing on like man thing and uh I think Blade is in there. Like the 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 Avengers and Aaron's Avengers being used uh on some throwaway mission. At, we'll get to the tie-ins in a minute. Um sorry, but, I didn't mean to get you ahead of yourself. No, that's okay. But I'm I'm pretty lukewarm in the event cuz also it's it's kind of boring. I got through, I read the whole thing and I was like all right, what was accomplished here? What did we learn about the Fantastic Four or the Avengers? What did we learn about uh hulkling and and what did we learn about koi and i guess we learned the most about koi and even that was that society that that like you said that these are two different people who both had a who were both celestial messiahs and and how were they raised affected the way they their outlook on the world and how they utilize their power but then Hulkling wasn't even there for most of it. Right, because he... Uh, spoilers, we're going to talk about what happens in this comic. Yeah, we're going to uh, spoil most of, most of Empire. Hulkling I think was that's replaced... that's what got me to, to write it off a lot more. Right, because it turns out Hulkling, for a large run of this comic, was replaced by a Skrull imposter. Like you do, it's a Skrull story. As you do, and I have no idea when that happened. I don't know why it happened i don't know how it happened it's never established it's never really shown it's never none of the tie-ins address it um i mean that was one of the canceled tie-ins um, maybe that's the case you know now that you're mentioning it i'm having trouble remembering ex the exact moment but this didn't bother me like a the, a scroll replacing somebody at some point is just like uh for the course but like it felt disingenuous especially because it was hulkling and they weren't he that Slot and Ewing didn't do a good enough job of giving us danger warning signs that something was wrong with him until he literally transforms into big spiky monster man. Right, and then he has to fight uh, the imposter. The actual real yeah. Hulkling has to fight the imposter, which is kind of... Yeah. Um, well, okay, so I'm not trying to push you ahead of yourself, but... <laughs> 
what you're getting at is um to me the Avengers stuff and the Fantastic Four stuff was so weak. I um so weak. anything that the main team of Avengers was doing could not care less. I guess um I kind of liked uh, I don't know who was scripting more for which parts, but I liked Slot and Ewing's voice for Tony Stark in this. I thought they like wrote an okay Tony Stark. Same mm -hmm. for Fantastic, he was okay, but like their role <laughs> impact on the story did not care for. What I really liked was um there was uh you called it a three shot? Is that what you called it? Yeah. Um, the Lords of Empire three one shots or three shots as we're uh, calling it. Uh, Celestial Messiah, Swordsman, and Emperor Hulkling. I thought all three of these issues were pretty strong to phenomenal, and that was the story that I really was interested in was this complicated family dynamic uh, between Koi his father who was sort of swordsman but was sort of this other being entirely and mantis who is a character that i admit i really love i love mantis um and i thought that their messed up family thing was really interesting and i liked that at the core of this and then on the other side with the uh emperor hulkling one shot uh I really liked, I think I mentioned this when we talked about it another time, but it felt like a fairy tale where uh, Hulkling is a magical prince and it turns out he's a magical prince of two different nations and he's going to be the king of space and he's got a magic sword and a cute witch boyfriend. Just like, I like that uh, one of them was in a fun fairy tale that was like a little dark, but like, a you know, like could be a really gay trippy disney fairy tale mm -hmm. and the other one was in like a really dark kind of grim fairy tale and um yeah just if you take out all the avengers and fantastic four and you're just left with empire i liked that central dynamic and then the like the fake outs and the betrayals and the court intrigue and stuff that was cool that was okay um but I, but Emperor Hulkling was it's gonna be one of my top issues of the year. I'm gonna when we give awards at the end of this year, I'm gonna nominate it for a bunch of stuff. Wow. I also really want to quickly mention that issue was um uh, written by Chip Zdarsky and Anthony Oliveira and penciled by Manuel uh, Garcia. And I'm pretty sure this is Anthony Oliveira's first comic script. He is a wonderful follow on Twitter. I like like everything he has to say, and he's like fun and funny and insightful about uh uh, gay interpretations of old Christian texts is kind of what he writes about a lot. Nice. And um, I thought I could see, I, I'm pretty sure I could see him in that issue in Lords of Empire, uh, Hulkling. And I just thought that was such a fantastic issue. It's one of my favorite characterizations of Hulkling. And ultimately it forwards his story because not only is he embracing his destiny as a space dude, but he got married. And that's been like a story that's been hanging since the late 2000s. He's been engaged. Yeah, I'm. I was a little cooler on Emperor Hulkling, and I think in part because I read it right after reading like the first couple issues of Empire, and I was just, I was like, all right, cool. And the 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 one shot didn't do a lot for the event. Like what what I was seeing in the event was not reflected in the one shot, and what I was seeing in the one shot was not reflected in the event. And it felt like I don't know why this had to be packaged in this way instead of being a, a bigger part of the event or set up for the event um, and it also undercutted a little of the tension that I want that I was looking forward to I was looking forward to the tension of oh cool my boyfriend is now space dude space emperor dude for this this new army I don't know how I feel about that but 
in the, in the issue, it makes it clear that Wiccan was not on board, but they talked it out and they have, because they are the good boys and they have a healthy relationship. Um, they discussed all of this beforehand. And so it wasn't like this big surprise. The Hulkling ran off to become emperor of these two armies for question mark, question mark, question mark. Um, but the issue itself is, as you said, very well done. And I just don't think it was a good tie-in issue. If anyone with any Marvel influence out there is listening, um, give Anthony Olivier a Young Avengers series. It will yes. be the best Young Avengers ever. Uh, I, I loved it. He put Prodigy and Speed in his scene. I thought they were delightful. Um, and it, yeah, it just it seemed really... I saw people I know reflected in that book and in, in, in all their like silly messiness and um and I'm sure that those are people from his life. I just like I loved that tie-in a lot. I also but I also like the Celestial Messiah and Swordsman tie-ins. I thought that there was a bunch of um anti-imperialist stuff about in Vietnam, uh, because um Mantis, despite <laughs> what you would think from the movies, is not from outer space. She's from Earth and from Vietnam. Um and a bunch of interesting environmentalist stuff in that swordsman issue, which um, the trees were painted as antagonists. Uh, the, the trees, the Kotati are printed as antagonists, but I, I, I found them to be really sympathetic after that swordsman one shot and complicated. I guess my verdict overall is, you know how we used to, people used to make those um, Star Wars edits where they would try to improve the Star Wars prequels by taking stuff out and putting stuff in? Yeah. One day, someone should make an edit of Empire and only put in, maybe I'll do it, but like cut it up and take out a bunch of the stupid uh, Avenger stuff and the stupid Fantastic Four stuff and make it a much more focused story about these two families at odds. And I think it's going to be like an above average comic at worst. And it might be pretty, pretty fantastic. Yeah, I think I think you could be right there. It, they just they picked the wrong focal, the focal points. Yeah, and one, I, the, the marketing and everything was so uh, determined to trick people that I think going in, we all had a sour taste on. We didn't know what it was going to be about, and we were we had prepared ourselves for one thing, and I think that always blows up in your face when yeah. you try to hide something like that. It doesn't help that almost all of the other tie-ins are weak sauce. Yeah, forgettable. Yeah, and it, we talked about Empire X-Men already, uh, but the other... The, the X-Men was fantastic. That is not... And this is only of the ones that are explicitly labeled Empire, colon, whatever. Like, created miniseries or one-shots for this. Uh, um, I guess I, I don't want to talk about this at any length, but I just want to mention, and Empire uh, Captain America was, like, gross and bad. Like, actually oh, yeah, that book... It was um, when I was in college before there was Captain America movies. I used to like the comics and I would recommend them to friends. And they are like, Captain America, I'm sure that guy is like a jingoistic uh, right wing nutcase. Um, but then that's that's not the case. If, and now everyone has met Captain America as played by Chris Evans wonderfully. But Empire Captain America is like everything you would just vomit if you you worried that Captain America would be like. Is is more similar to Ultimate Universe Captain America than the good Captain America. Who I always choose to read as a parody, Ultimate Captain America, and I get a lot of mileage out of that. <laughs> See, that's the only way to read it, because you know he was not written that way. 
Um, I mean, that's true, but like Empire Captain America isn't even like funny in a satirical way. He's just kind of yeah. nasty and blunt. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't. I don't want to. I don't want to insult Jim Zolb's Empire's Avengers because I had fun with it, but it was also weak sauce. Didn't really need to be here. Zub sometimes does like Jim Zub uh, likes to do some not likes to, but sometimes his books are kind of fluffy and and airy. Like they they don't have any impact. But you're like, oh, this is like an exciting psychedelic comic book crazy idea, and he goes back and forth on it. I I like Jim Zub. Uh, I just this wasn't my favorite thing. Yeah. I had preferred uh, Agents of Wakanda. Mm-hmm. Um, which was by Jim Zub. I thought I that was that like, was supposed to cross over, but then it got canned because COVID. But if you want to just read like a light Jim Zub book, that book is just like balls to the wall fun. Um, that would be my my recent Jim Zub pick. Although he's got a a deep uh, comicsography with a lot of great stuff in it. Um, yeah. that's kind of it for me for Empire. I like sorry that COVID messed you up so bad, Marvel. Um, uh, better luck next year. Yeah, and maybe put a little bit more setup into your events, and like a little bit more care. Like yeah. uh, you, you keep on owning yourselves with these uh, bad politics that I don't think anyone means to do, and you can't do that. You gotta, you gotta have a better editorial process. I'm sure Dark Age is gonna be fun. It's written by Tom Taylor, so I do love me some Tom Taylor, but I also he love me some make Ewing. The worst things, good. He made zombies good again. He made the Injustice universe good. Um, he also wrote the only good X-Men comic for like a year. Oh, that, God, that's true. And the only good Wolverine comic. Anyway, before we wrap up here, we have one last uh, segment that we are going to be ending our, some of our shows with. Yes, it's time. Bring out the belt. Ring the bell. The Marvel <laughs> Heavy Champions are here to defend their title. I love it when you talk wrestling. Mine's pretty short and simple this uh, month. Uh, last month, my uh, Marvel Heavyweight Champion of the World book was... Oh, I guess we should explain what this segment is before we go into it. Okay, so <laughs> every month, we read a lot of Marvel books. We try to read all of them. We definitely read most of them. And every Marvel book is a potential contender. It could come in and steal the championship. And the championship means that in our hearts, this is the best Marvel book. Everything else is uh, in its shadow. And uh, and last month we announced our uh, inaugural ones. So I picked uh, Daredevil, the Chip Zdarsky series, as my uh, inaugural champion. And Elias, you picked Empire X Men, which I'm guessing is not going to remain the champion. Who knows? Um, I, however, am excited to report that uh, Daredevil has not been dethroned. Daredevil is still my favorite Marvel book. Uh, X Men stuff is a pretty strong contender. Uh, Immortal Hulk by Al Ewing is phenomenal. But Daredevil had a wacky annual this month that I can't even begin to describe. But I don't think Daredevil is going to get dethroned anytime soon. Daredevil's going so strong, and I love everything that it's about. So, um, you would be correct in that my my title has been defeated. Empire X Men is no longer no longer the reigning champ. But another X title has taken the throne. That is X Force. Not X Force, X Factor. X Factor. So, That's much. The, I was the, like, X Force is ridiculous. X Factor. The one by Leigh Williams and uh, David Baldion. Um, why has your heart been so stolen by X Factor? Well, for the Empire X Men fell enough that another has taken its place, but also because it's just so charming. 
I really like X Factor. I've laughed every time I read it. <laughs> I'm invested in the characters. I love seeing Baldion's facial expressions. They are priceless. Very cartoony, but very expressive. Oh, they're perfect. They're on I... Mojo World right now, and it's ah. Oh. But it's like um, it's like the post digital comment section Mojo World. I write about it extensively in um this month's Mutantversity, in fact. Yeah, and Lee Williams once again still feels like a modern writer, not trying to be modern and pretentious, but trying to definitely. Oh, or be like, hello, fellow kids. Well, because she is a kid. She's writing... 25 or something. Really? And she's younger than me. Well, that makes me sad that I have not done quite as much good work as Leia has. But I can't feel too bad because I know a lot of writers that never did anything until they were like 70. So, I've got another decades um but back to x factor i, think I was x, yeah. yeah go ahead well I, I was talking to my girlfriend about x factor and um one thing that i said was that there's some things about it that are just like ineffably millennial that if i showed it to somebody who was of a different generation i think they would just blink at it and not react at all but to millennials it just like really evokes a certain type of person for example, there's a cute monster puppy that they name Amazing Baby. And Amazing Baby. yeah, there's a little werewolf that they call Amazing Baby. That's the name mm -hmm. of the puppy. And that's just like such a weirdly specific millennials on Twitter thing to name your pup, your monster puppy Amazing Baby. And I can't explain that <laughs> if you don't, if you, if you get it, you do. And if you don't, you don't. But that's like a, that's the specificity. She she seems so fresh and young because she is, and and she's talented on top of that. So like she she doesn't seem hello fellow kids because she is a fellow kid saying hello. But she also doesn't feel like, and maybe this won't be true in in five to ten years when I look back on the book. But it doesn't feel like if I were to read a '90s book where it's like where even the writers were they were considered hip and groovy and with it Gonna yeah but with the expense with the exception of uh, rob liefeld they were all in their 30s or 40s this is true and rob, rob liefeld, liefeld was like 18 cannot be, cannot be called a good storyteller necessarily um outside I mean, of the context of the books that came right before him uh we should do a whole episode on liefeld sometime yeah, I, I'm right. going to break out that Panel X Panel one shot on Liefeld because I think yeah. that really helped inform my view of him. We'll call Fast. it the rise and fall and rise and fall and rise and fall of Rob Liefeld. <laughs> um, yeah. But, but that's a great pick. I think X-Factor is an awesome champion book. Uh, do you think it's likely to be dethroned anytime soon or do you think it may reign a long time? Um, I'm not sure because I have a, lot, a few books that are very, very strong. X-Men is always waiting in the wings to blow me away with just a, a single issue. Immortal Hulk continues to be consistently great. Daredevil continues to be consistently great. Um, and I never, you never know what's coming up on the wings. Like, we're going to be getting that Children of the Atom book with Vita Ayala. 
and I don't know what else is coming. There might be an issue of Dark Ages that just I have to sit back and go, oh, we found it. This is my new fave. And then I might read an issue of Venom that happens to blow me away. I don't know. I doubt it. You're just open to the possibility. Anything could happen. Yeah, and anything could happen. And I know a bunch of books that have the potential. And I'd be very surprised if some of the other books, like if Fantastic Four or Amazing Spider-Man puts out an issue that dethrones it, I will be utterly shocked. <laughs> but it could happen. There have been moments where I'm like, this, this got good. And then instantly thrown into the trash can, burnt, and then put on, made into a TikTok. <laughs> Well, there you have it. Our uh, reigning champions are currently Daredevil and X-Factor, and we're going to check back in next month to see if they're still going strong. Uh, but before then, we are actually going to have our next book club book, which has already been announced. But Elias, why don't you remind the good people what they should be reading if they want to uh, keep up with our book club? If you would like to keep up with the book club, we will be reading Bullet Points, which is a five-issue miniseries by J. Michael Straczynski and Tommy Lee Edwards. Um, yes, and uh, we're going to have a lot of stuff to say about the career of J. Michael Straczynski, so stay tuned. He's an interesting fella. He is. All right, uh, so. Yeah. You, you, you can do it. <laughs> you want me to sign us off? Okay, well, Elias, if people want to find your good works, where should they look to? They should go and try to find me somewhere on the internet. If they yell into the deep corners in the back crevice, they might hear an echo. But you can also find me on Twitter at Quetzal-ish, Q-U-E-T-Z-E-L-I-S-H. I'm there semi-regularly, but most of the time I'm logged out. So you'll have to actually ping me if you want to communicate. Why is my name like that? You'll never know. But really, it's just because I don't know myself. I don't know either. But... If you were to look for my great wisdom on the internet, you could find me on Twitter as well at rambling underscore moose. And uh, I also do writings for the great, great website, multiversitycomics.com. My X-Men column is called Mutantversity, and a lot of the things that we uh, delved into this month, I uh, get even deeper into. So if you liked what you heard here and you want to see that with pictures, it's going to be a Mutantversity on multiversitycomics.com. It's always great. And I totally forgot that I also write from multiversity.com which hosts this podcast you sure do i sure do uh right now i'm doing in the web comics column a bi-weekly every other week look at the tower of god anime and the webtoon and comparing the two so if you're a fan of tower of god come join us every other week and i'm sure you'll find something interesting to see thank you guys we'll see you next time yeah excelsior